O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. T.S. Eliot, at the end of the Four Quartets, said, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. On Trinity Sunday, which is today, we arrive at the end of a long journey, a journey that begins each year at the beginning of Advent, the journey that tells the story of God becoming incarnate, in Jesus of Nazareth, which then moves through the birth of Jesus, his childhood, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, his life of ministry, healing, teaching, confronting the powers that be, that leads to his death on the cross, his rising again on the third day, his appearances to his disciples, and then to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And now here on Trinity Sunday, we get to the end of that story, back to where we started, which is the mystery of God, where everything began. But we arrive back at the beginning and know this mystery as though for the first time. It's fitting that this whole story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is capped by a celebration of the Trinity, because the doctrine of the Trinity is not an abstract speculation about the nature of God. Instead, it's an attempt to make sense of what happened in Jesus. The early church did not come up with the doctrine of Trinity just to make life complicated for us. They came up with it because they were wrestling with what it meant that in their experience, Jesus Christ was God incarnate, the Word made flesh, and that the Spirit, God's Spirit, had been poured out on them. So the story of God's relationship to the world, these early Christians were convinced, had these three distinct reference points. God who created us, God redeeming us in Christ, and God sanctifying us through the Holy Spirit. That was their experience, and it's in trying to make sense of it that they developed this doctrine of the Trinity. We are saved and brought to our fulfillment by God the Creator, God the Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's this story that has taken us from Advent all the way through to this day. And it's because of this story that we know that God is triune. And because of what we've learned about God in this story of salvation, that we can say that God is three persons in one being, not only in relation to us, but in God's own inner being. So we have to start by what we know of God in the world and from there deduce who God is in God's self. And even though there's this tremendous mystery of God and there's something about God that we can never, there's infinite amounts about God that we can never know, we still can know that God, as God's revealed in Christ and in the Spirit, is who God really is in God's being, that God is true to God's self in revealing God's self in the world. And so we can say that what we know of this Trinity is that it is a Trinity of love. The story of God acting to create, to redeem, to sanctify us is the story of God's love for us. 
a love manifested from that first moment of creation when God created this beautiful world for us and called it good. This love that God has for us is rooted in God's own being, which is a being of love. God does not exist as this isolated monad. God exists in relationship, a relationship of self-giving and delight among the three persons of the Trinity, the lover, the beloved, and love, as St. Augustine put it. The early Christian fathers described this relationship as perichoresis, which literally means to dance around or to dance through which conveys the sense that these three persons exist in this dance of love and delight and ceaseless movement. So God is not stasis or sameness. God is movement, difference, creating space for the other, delighting in the other, a ceaseless giving and receiving of love. But the glory in this story, the unfathomable miracle of it, is that God did not just keep all of this love to God's self, which God could have done. God did not need to create the world, right? God is complete blessedness and fullness in God's self. But God chose not to be without us. So out of an overflowing of love, God created the world and us in the world. The creation account that we just heard Mark read speaks to this delight and generosity and extravagance with which God creates the world. The lights in the sky, the plants in their seeds, the Leviathan and the, all the things that swim, and, and the creeping things that creep on the earth, and then humankind in God's own image. All of it poured forth as a gift of God's overflowing love. Orderly, beautiful, extravagant, and very, very good. And why did God do all of this? So that we and all of creation could become participants in this dance of love that is God's own being. So that famous icon of the Trinity on the front cover of your worship bulletin shows the three persons of the Trinity sitting at the table, but the fourth side is open. That's the side that we're invited to sit on. God is making room for us in God's own being. And that's why God created us, so that we could join in that dance of love. That's an invitation to the whole created order, but it means something particular for us as humans because we're made in God's image. And to be made in God's image means all kinds of different things, but in this passage, it means to act as God acts in this creation story, that is, to pour ourselves out in love. To be made in God's image means that we are creatures who are capable of love, and to join in this dance of love means to return God's love with our own, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our enemies, to love one another as Christ loved us. And what that love means is revealed to us again, above all, in the story that we just finished, the story of Christ incarnate, born, living, among us, healing us, dying for us, rising, and coming in God's Spirit, where we learn that love has no greater expression than to lay down and to give up one's life for the other. And so when Jesus commissions his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, he is calling them 
to be drawn into this relationship of love that's already swirling around in God's own being and that has been revealed in Christ. So he says, make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them and draw them into this dance. And what's interesting to me too here as we enter into deep calls to deep is that so much of what we do in this pouring out of love is done by speaking, by proclaiming. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, these words say above our heads. And it's Jesus commissioning says, proclaim, teach, do these things, speak in my name. That is part of what it means to be created in God's image. If you look at the story of Genesis and compare it to other ancient Near East creation accounts, A lot of those creation stories God created by violence, by breaking something, by defeating some monster. But in this story, God creates by speaking, nonviolently, lovingly speaking the word and the world into existence. And so for us who are preachers, the call is to be in God's image and to speak in that way, to speak in that love that calls forth creation and that calls forth love and that calls everyone into God's dance. Now sometimes it can be hard to sense God's love and presence and to preach that good news. And perhaps some of us are here at Deep Calls to Deep because we find it hard and we're looking for ways to bring more life to our preaching, to find that presence of love in which we live and move and have our being and are called to speak. So in that, when we feel that, it's important to remember that Genesis 1 was not written by some serene priest who was holed up in his study in Jerusalem looking out at the beautiful city and all of its order and and grandeur. No, that would have been a situation where God's love would have been easy to perceive and the order and the beauty of the world would have been easy to perceive. But that's not where this story was written. If you go back to your Old Testament courses, this Genesis account was written when the people of God were in exile in Babylon, where they hung up their harps and they sat down and wept. And it must have been very, very hard for them to feel that God's love and presence were with them. It must have been very hard to believe that God had created this chaotic and suffering-filled world in which they were living so far from their home. But it's precisely then, in the midst of all that loss and all that confusion, that the writer of Genesis sat down and wrote this account, this beautiful account of creation, and said, look, this world was created by a loving God and was created with order and with purpose and with beauty and with goodness and with love. And that is true no matter what. And now here in these times, our own chaotic and suffering-filled times when it can feel so hard to know where the presence of God is to be found and where this dance of love is happening in our world, that's when we are called as preachers to step forth and to claim our calling as those who are called to speak, to preach, to proclaim that that is still true. This world was created by a loving God we are called into that love. We are called to proclaim it right now in this world. So where do we get the strength to do that? Where do we get the power to do that? 
first of all, we preach in community because God is triune. We are not isolated monads any more than God is. We are created to be in communion. We just are connected to each other in ways that we can't even mostly see most of the time. So our strength to preach, our strength to make disciples, to teach, to do all the things that we're called to do comes from being in these relationships with each other. And that's what Deep Calls to Deep is really all about, a community of preachers, to know that we're not alone, that we find our voices in our connections to each other and not alone. So that's one way we get the strength to preach this good news, even in times such as these. But secondly, we get the strength to preach. We get a little clue about where it comes from in the end of the Genesis account, where it says God rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. God rested because God was satisfied. Everything had gone really well. It was according to plan. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing lost. There was nothing missing. There was no need to keep laboring and straining. It was complete. And so God rested so that God could just delight in what God had made. And we are called to rest also. This is the Sabbath day, but it's a reminder that that is woven into the fabric of creation. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's something that God calls us to do, is to rest in God's presence. We are called to rest so that we know that we don't have to keep pushing and straining and grasping and trying because God is really in control of God's world. And Sabbath is profoundly an act of faith because it says, I'm not in control, God is control, in control, and so I can rest. It's this constant learning and relearning of this truth that God is God and I am not God that I do whatever I do only through Christ who strengthens me. That's what gives us power as preachers to proclaim God's word in this world. That's the wellspring of our preaching. Now, it may seem strange in these difficult times to say that we have to stop trying so hard, but I think that is what we need to do, to stop trying so hard, to let go, to rest in God, and only then, when we reach out our hands, we discover that we're not alone, that we are grasped by those strong and loving and joyful hands of the triune God who whirls us up into this dance of love and whose grasp reminds us of that truth that Jesus spoke right at the end to his disciples. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age.